We're moving now to the time of Bible readings. The first one is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37 on page 892. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The second reading is uh, James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, and it's on page 1043, James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Now suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand there, sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. 
If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everyone. My name is Ed. I'm the congregational pastor of the 7 p.m. service here, and I'm going to be helping, helping us think through this passage in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Uh, our family uh, has a little friend called Ethan. He's the friend of my middle son, George. Uh, they're six years old, and they're in year one together. Uh, Ethan has started coming along to church with us up at Neutral Bay at 10 a.m., And uh, one time when we were picking him up to go along to church, Ethan wanted to show that he was getting serious about this God stuff. And so out he came from his house, and he had his rosary beads around his neck. And uh, and he was so proud of himself. And his mum and I just thought it was the cutest thing that here was this little guy showing, yeah, I'm I'm full on about this. And it got me thinking, well, how is it that we like to show that we're serious about our faith? How do we show that our religion is real these days? Maybe if you're on Facebook, you you might change your religion status to say Christian, or if you're really brave, evangelical Christian. Uh, Perhaps, like Ethan, you wear a cross around your neck, or maybe if you come from Newtown, you might tattoo the cross somewhere on your body. Uh, Perhaps you carry a Bible wherever you go, or you're one of those really brave Christians and you put a Jesus sticker on the back of your car so that you're accountable everywhere that you drive. Uh, All these different ways that we try and show how we're serious about our faith, but James has already given us three tests that show how real our religion is. Uh, They came at the end of our last chapter. Why don't you read with me what James says is a test of your true religion. It's in James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. He says, if you've got real faith, if your religion is real, You'll do two, three things. Verse 26, you'll keep a tight rein on your tongue. Control the words that come out of your mouth. Verse 27, you'll look after orphans and widows in their distress. And the end of verse 27, you'll keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Three tests to show that your religion is real, that you're serious about your faith, that you have a faith that is not lacking. And these little three tests form almost titles of the rest of the book of James. And so for the next two weeks, as we look at chapter 2, we're going to be exploring that middle test, that test of true religion that shows itself in the care of orphans and widows, of the vulnerable and needy. To be honest, it's something that the church has been famous for throughout history, isn't it? Christians were the ones who started the orphanages. Uh, who began the schools to educate the children, uh, who ran the hospitals, who cared for the vulnerable, cared for those who couldn't even care for themselves. Well, these days we've got organisations that do that, don't we? We've got Anglicare, we've got World Vision, Compassion, the Salvos. But how about you individually? How does care and concern for the vulnerable and needy characterize your Christian walk? Why should care of the vulnerable and the marginalized be a barometer of the realness of your faith? 
Well, we know that saying, don't we? Uh, Like father, like son. The same is true when it comes to your heavenly father. Uh, What is your heavenly father like? Time and time again throughout the Bible, it tells us that God is a God who cares for the needy. Uh, Psalm 68 verse 5 says that God is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. Uh, Having a Care and concern for those who can't care back for you uh, is just what it means to be a child of the living God. It's what it means to have your heart beating after your father's heart. Uh, Of particular concern for James today is not just positively what we do for the needy, but also negatively what we might do to neglect the needy and the the marginalised. And so our big idea today really is all captured in the very first verse of our Chapter, chapter 2. It's on the screen above. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, James says, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. I mean, it's it's all there in those words, isn't it? We are those who know the glory of the Lord Jesus. We know his heavenly glory, uh, of which the worldly glory is just nothing in comparison. Uh, favoritism is right out amongst us as a church family because we're believers. We're those who've been given the gift of faith from God, a gift that God gives indiscriminate of your social status, of your education, of your wealth, all those sort of things. Uh, Favoritism has no place amongst us, as the start of the verse says, because we're brothers and sisters. We're a family. And we've seen how disastrous. We're We're all part of families, aren't we? We've seen how disastrous favoritism is in a family. So favoritism has no place. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here because I want us to think about just one very simple and big idea today. It's just that you would have a faith without favoritism. That's all we want you to walk away with today. The hard thing about favoritism is that it's not something that you and I do consciously, is it? It's something that comes from underlying bias biases that we hold, from judgments that we make. Uh, Favoritism is is something that just sort of rides deep within us and we're we're not particularly conscious of. So to get our heads around what we're talking about when we're talking about favoritism, uh, we're going to do three things. We're going to look at what favoritism is, and we're going to define what it is and what it isn't. We're going to think through three reasons that James says that favoritism is wrong, in the people of God, uh, and then we're going to look at an antidote to favoritism. But we're certainly going to need God's help as we do that because we're dealing with things that we don't even know exist in our own hearts. So we're going to ask God now to shine his light into our hearts and help us to, to grow into the people that he wants us to be. So let's pray to God as we launch in here. Heavenly Father, as we look into your perfect word that gives freedom, Help us not only to understand and believe what it says, but help us also to do what it says, that we may have a faith not lacking, a faith without favoritism, a faith that honours you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by defining exactly what it means when uh, James is talking about favoritism. Uh, The word favoritism is literally the word receiving someone according to their face, judging someone based on external appearances. Uh, 
judging someone according to worldly characteristics rather than godly criteria. It's translated as partiality in some different translations of the Bible. Here we have it as favoritism. Uh, I guess we don't need to look too long and far to work out what it might look like amongst us because James gives us a brilliant example in verses 2 to 4. So why don't you read it with me and I'll sort of modernise it a little bit and put it into a church by the bridge context. So chapter 2, verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting. He's wearing, let's not say a gold ring, let's say he's uh, twirling a Bentley key ring around his finger. Uh, he's wearing fine clothes, so a nice crisp white linen shirt, uh, blue navy sort of uh, pants slightly rolled up at the ankle and some brown loafers. Uh, and this man, he just smells delicious. Like he's got this beautiful cologne and you're thinking, mm, that is quite a, quite a smell. And then, oh, hold on a second, this putrid odour just hits your nostrils because also, what's come in is a poor man in sort of soiled clothing, clothes that smell of stale urine and that gut-turning stench of body odour that's built up over time. And this poor man in filthy clothes also come in. Verse 3, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, oh, you are most welcome here, sir, at 7pm, uh, you will find many people like you here at our church. Uh, why, not, why not come inside and uh, please come and sit next to my friend James and, uh, and Jackie. Come and sit in the middle because uh, that's where everyone likes to sit and uh, you'll, you'll find a real home here at 7pm at Church by the Bridge. Uh, but then you say to the poor man, we don't have many people like you here, sir. Uh, are you new here? Uh, why don't you come and, and sit up the back at Actually, uh, even better, uh, Anglicans never fill up from the front. Come down the front and sit down the front, and then no one will be able to smell you. Uh, and uh, would you like a bite? Oh, you probably don't read. We're a literate bunch here, so uh, why don't you just sit through the service, and afterwards I'll take you out to supper. Verse 4, James says, Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves? Haven't you just chosen who you think is precious in God's eyes? Haven't you said who you think belongs in the church rather than who God chooses? Haven't you become judges with evil thoughts, judging people by the world's criteria, not God's criteria? You see, favoritism runs deep in us, and it's not just in worldly wealth that we do it. We do it with education status. We do it with where we live, with ability to speak English, with connections, social connections that we have around us. But the church is to be the one place where everyone comes even. We know that Christian truism, don't we? That the ground is level at the foot of the cross of Jesus. There's no high ground. There's no low ground. Every single soul who comes to Jesus comes as a sinner, needing to be washed in the very same blood, needing to be made spotless through the very same sacrifice. There is no one better, no one worse, before the cross of Jesus. We all come even before him. So favoritism is judging people as worthy or unworthy of belonging amongst you based on worldly criteria. 
It's saying that we know better than God knows and we will be better judges of who will and will not belong in this family. Now, I have to say that I actually think we are quite good at not showing favoritism as a church. Uh, I called up some people who live in the Greenway Housing Commission down the road who are members of our church and I asked them how they feel if they experience favoritism here in this church. I thought this will give us some good material because, you know, they'll say that it's a terrible place and we're all very judgmental. But they said they feel wonderfully welcome here. They feel part of the family. They feel loved and cherished. And I thought, good on you, church by the bridge. Go, go church. But I, I wonder if perhaps it's not the initial welcome where favoritism bites, but maybe three or six months down the track where favoritism really kicks in. Because I hear it time and time again. People say to me, I've been here for you know, a little while now, Ed, but I just can't seem to crack this bunch. I can't seem to get in. I've, I keep having the same conversations over supper after church. I, I, I keep sort of feeling like no one really wants to embrace me and, and welcome me as a friend. It's worth saying that favoritism is not the same as friendship, as favoring people because you want to be friends with them. Uh, Jesus, we know, he favoured some people and chose them to be his special friends. He had 12 uh, apostles who he chose to spend extra time with. And then even amongst them, he had three of them, uh, Peter, James and John, who were his sort of inner circle. But the wonderful thing about Jesus is that he was a friend of sinners, wasn't he? He was open to the most surprising friendships. He was open to anyone or everyone. So let me perhaps illustrate uh, through a friend of mine from the year above me at high school. His name is Marty Wilson. And Marty Wilson is an incredibly godly man. And he was also an incredibly brilliant rugby union player. Uh, Marty, after finishing school, went on to play for rugby union for the New South Wales Waratahs. And when I finished school a year after, I found myself in the same degree as Marty Wilson. I thought, here is my chance to become friends with the living legend, Marty Wilson. He's Christian, I'm Christian, he's sporty, I'm sporty. Uh, we both went to the same school. We'll hit it off. But every time that I would call Marty and you know, want to catch up or maybe go for a surf. Well, Marty was having tie with Frank, the introverted guy who didn't speak great English. Uh, and they were having tie and catching up together and too busy for me. Or when I wanted to you know, go to the gym with Marty and you know, get strong together and be legends, there he was hanging out with Lars, the guy who was on the fringes and never quite connected in with people at university. You see, Marty's heart was a heart that beat after his saviour's heart. He had a heart that was sort of eager to go to those on the outside and try and bring them in. And I wonder, as you think about your life here at Church by the Bridge, I wonder if there are people that you know who are sort of maybe just on the outside that you could open yourself up to bring them in a little more, uh, to maybe open up your conversation over supper, to... Spend some quality time with someone you haven't spent good time with before. To open up your social calendar. Maybe you're going to be hanging out with some people maybe 
you're doing table for eight next week and you've only got six guests and you could invite someone else or you've got a big enough table and you could do table for ten. Just don't tell James, who's the organiser. <laughs> Maybe you could open your home to people and welcome them in. All these different ways that you can uh, open your life to draw people in, just like Jesus did, and be open to new friendships. Uh, friendship is not the same as favouritism, but this is what favouritism will say about friendship. I could never be friends with that person. It's not even worth me starting to bother because they're not like me. They're not from my tribe. Well, let's look briefly at James's three reasons why favouritism is so wrong. Uh, Firstly, it's up on the screen above, favouritism dishonours those whom God often honours. Verse 5 of chapter 2 is not a sort of hands-down law of God's, but it really is true of the way that God acts in our world, isn't it? Uh, Verse 5, chapter 2, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised those who love him? And so uh, this week just passed, uh, one of the people that I called and spoke to um, was Richard. Uh, Richard's here tonight, and I asked Richard, uh, you have been through some hardships in life, and I asked Richard, how has God used some of those hardships and and difficulties to enrich in your faith. And Richard very quickly shared with me a prayer. Uh, listen to this prayer, Richard. Do you remember the prayer? Tell us what it is. Let me repeat it. Afflict me or comfort me according to your will. But only this I ask, Lord, let me serve you in truth and justice. I know many very wise and, and wonderfully successful men who have never prayed a prayer as profound as what Richard chooses to pray uh, to, that God would work through him. I think God has a lot to teach us through those who don't have as much in the world. And so we might say that, consider ourselves the haves, but we have a lot to learn from those who don't have as much because they are not caught up with the trappings of wealth. They're not caught up with the deceitfulness of wealth. As Jesus said, that worries of this life and deceitfulness of wealth choke the word of God, making it unfruitful. So I'm excited to be leading a team of people. Uh, Sally Hartley is coming with me, uh, some others. Uh, Cecilia, we're going to Indonesia to visit our Compassion Sponsor children. And we're not doing it because we've got something brilliant to go over and to teach them. We're doing it as a learning experience. We're going to go to central Java, and we want to learn from the faith of those who have far less than us. Because verse 5 is so true. God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world, to be rich in faith. Well, uh, when we show favoritism against the poor, we dishonour those whom God chooses to honour. But the converse is also true, isn't it? When we honour those uh, who are rich, we're often honouring those who dishonour Jesus, and that's our second point. 
when we show favoritism, uh, we judge according to the standards of the world around us. We uphold those the world esteems and, and honour. And often those people that the world loves and thinks are brilliant, well, often they have a, let's say at the best, a blatant disregard for Jesus. Maybe, and as was the case here for James and his friends, they actually were against Jesus. So verse 6, James tells us that it isn't it the rich who are exploiting you? Uh, isn't it the rich who are dragging you into court, making you the scapegoats of the evil that they're undertaking? Aren't they the ones who use your Saviour's name as a swear word? Well, it's interesting that James, when he speaks about the rich, uh, he never refers to Christians as being rich. It's not that he expected that Christians were not going to have money, but when he spoke about the rich, he was speaking about those who trusted in wealth rather than trusted in Jesus. And these are the ones who are actually persecuting and making life of the Christians hard in Jerusalem. Now you think in the context that James was writing from, the impoverished Jerusalem church, well, having a few wealthy benefactors would be brilliant, wouldn't it? These are the ones whom Paul the Apostle travelled around raising funds for to support the impoverished saints in Jerusalem. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have some wealthy donors who could match dollar for dollar your giving in Jerusalem? Or some people who could underwrite the budget when we just don't quite meet it? But God's promised that he will grow his church, not as we pander to the wealthy, but as we preach the gospel, the gospel that treats all people equally and without discrimination. And we know, don't we, that the gospel of Jesus is a gospel of repentance, of turning to God, of surrender and sacrifice and, and saying to God, your will, not mine. And the gospel demands uh, I guess it demands more from those who are wealthy in the eyes of the world. So it's fair enough to expect that there will be less people in the kingdom of heaven who have great worldly wealth and more people who have less of those worldly trappings. Well, the last problem with favoritism that James identifies is not just that it's unfortunate, but thirdly, that it is sinful. Favoritism is sinful. You might be sitting there saying to yourself, uh, you know, what's a little bit of favoritism here and there? Can't I just hang out with the people who are like me? You know, can't I just spend time with the people from my tribe? Well, many people say, I just love my neighbour as myself. I just keep Jesus' royal law of, of loving others as I love myself. Well, uh, verses 8 to 11 James explains that you can't say that you keep God's law if you break one part of it. We often think of God's rules as like a pile of rocks, don't we? And so we think, well, you know, if I just show a bit of favoritism, it's just like taking one rock off the pile, isn't it? But, you know, I've not murdered and I've never committed adultery, so I'm not going that badly. And James says, no, don't think of God's laws like a pile of rocks. Think about God's laws like a pane of glass. And he says, if you crack that pane just in any way, you've broken the whole pane of glass. And don't just think about rules that are getting broken. Think about the person who stands behind those rules because every rule of God's laws comes from out of God's heart. So you break the laws, you break God's heart, which stand behind those laws. And so he says, uh, 
you are convicted if you break, uh, if, if you show favoritism as a lawbreaker. Verse 9, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So what's the antidote to favoritism? Well, verse 12 tells us, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. When James thinks about the laws of God, he thinks about it in in two ways. He thinks about the law being one that reveals life and also the law is something that gives life. Firstly, it reveals life by showing you the way that God expects you to live, showing you how God wants you to live a holy life. And you know what? If you're honest and if I'm honest, we suck at it. We fall so far short, and we're just not going to get there. And so it shows us that we need to do what all need to do and cast ourselves on the mercy of God. Say, God, I can't do it. I need your forgiveness. I need your mercy. And once we've received God's forgiveness in the the death of his son Jesus in our place for our law-breaking, our transgressions, well, once we've accepted that, then the law gives life. Uh, it, It shows us the way to live. It shows us the best way to live. And so the antidote to, to favoritism is just being someone who lives out God's laws, who knows the mercy of God and shows God's mercy to others. And so I want to finish by giving a very practical way that you can show mercy in your life, that you can fight favoritism by being a person of mercy. Up on the screen above me is Viv Chapman. Viv is our mercy Ministries Coordinator at our church. Uh, Viv uh, took on this role at the beginning of last year. She was formerly a ministry intern, and then she's taken on this role as uh, Mercy Ministries Coordinator. I've asked Viv to share with me so that I can share with you the surprising joys that she's discovered as she served in Mercy Ministries. Uh, Viv, let me tell you about uh, Viv's first days on the job in this role of Mercy Ministries. Uh, she, she discovered that one of her roles early on would be visiting the local nursing homes. Uh, Viv felt neither the, the gifting, nor the skills, nor the enthusiasm to do this job. So she started praying. She was scared. She didn't want to go there. Uh, this is how day one went. She had to go along to James Milson Village, where she was responsible for running and conducting a, a little prayer book service. She turned up to the room, half of which was already asleep. So she only had half of the room to work with, and one of the people there was sort of calling out loudly throughout the service. Uh, She had to sing with them, which is always an intimidating thing, uh, and only one other person sort of hummed along with her. So she had to sing in front of a room of half-sleeping and not really listening people. Uh, At the end of the service, Viv thought, I'll make conversation with this lady Uh, to find out how she found um, this service. And she discovered that this lady couldn't even hear her. So she hadn't heard anything that she'd just been sitting through. And Viv left thinking, what is the point? Why am I doing this? Uh, So she kept praying, and she decided that she would go back again. She kept returning, and as the visits continued and she kept ministering to these people, Actually, a surprise happened for her because they began to minister back to her. Uh, She started to meet saints who had persevered in the faith for over 70 years. She wrestled with people who, in the final days of their lives, 
were thinking really seriously about Jesus' words that if you do not forgive others, you will not be forgiven. And they were wrestling with how they could forgive people who'd seriously hurt them. She came to understand that aging and loneliness and ultimately death will happen to everyone. But most importantly, she grasped the wonderful truth that nothing, neither aging nor frailty, nor your seeming unimportance to the rest of the world around you, could ever separate you from the love of God. She saw these people as precious in God's sight, as, as sort of frail and, and, uh, and maybe even decrepit as they might have become, they still bore the image of God. They still mattered to God. And so because God loved them, Viv loved them, and God ministered to her. She continues to do this ministry, and it's far from glamorous. Uh, it uh, continues to be hard for her. But Viv has discovered that this nursing home ministry is one of the great joys uh, of her weekly serving here at church. Well, remember how we started tonight. I asked you the question, how do you show that your religion is real? How do you show that you're serious about your faith? James told us it's to look after orphans and widows in their distress. It's to care for the vulnerable and the needy. So up on the screen above me are three mercy ministries that you could very easily get involved in at our church and show that you've got that real religion. Our ministry to the Greenway Housing Commission, there are 500 residents down in Greenway. On the first Sunday of every month, we host a small church service followed by a free community lunch. And around 50 or more sometimes people come along to that lunch and we are always eager to have more people who will come, love people and make conversation. James Milson Retirement Village uh, contains uh, uh, self-care units right through to um, full care nursing home and there's around 120 residents there. Uh, and they visit on the first and third Sundays of the month from 2.30 to 3.30 p.m. They go down and they have tea and biscuits with the residents, some of whom we are their only visitors in the week that's just gone by. What a precious ministry to them. Lansdowne Gardens is the nursing homes at Neutral Bay and around 40 residents in those, in those places. And every, the first Thursday of every month at 2 p.m., Viv goes and often on her own, runs a communion service for the residents there. She would love people to accompany her and to engage in that ministry. If you'd like to take your part in showing mercy to those in need, then you can email Viv, her email's up on the screen, and you could very easily find her email address on our website as well. So how do you have a faith that is not lacking? How do you have a real religion? You make sure that you care for those who are in need. Positively, be one who shows mercy to those in need. But also making sure that we counter negatively that terrible sin of favoritism in our midst. Let's pray. Let's finish in prayer, praying that we would be those believers in our glorious Lord Jesus who show no favoritism. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, Give us a faith without favoritism. Help us be welcoming to all, 
and open to new relationships. Help us to honor those you honor and not to be overawed by worldly glory, which just means nothing before you. Keep us from the sin of favoritism and help us to be those who speak and act in accordance with your life-giving laws. Help us to love our neighbors as ourselves and especially those in our local Greenway, James Milson and Lansdowne Gardens villages. We pray this so that we might have a faith not lacking and that our practical faith will glorify our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.